Hello and welcome to another special episode of the podcast, The Show Up Dad, podcast for tradesmen fathers. Today I have a very special guest. His name is Nathan Padilla. He works at La Familia Mental Health. Let me tell you a little bit about Nathan, okay? Lost in an ocean of drugs and alcohol, Nathan righted his ship when he became a father. Padilla is a Roswell native. He lived in Albuquerque at the worst time of his life. He was going nowhere but down. Despite having good jobs in construction and retail because of a cocaine addiction and a drinking problem. But when his son was born 16 years ago, he became a new man. That was the catalyst for his change. At 29, he wasn't doing well at all. He was actually very lost, very confused. And the new girl he was with became pregnant. So join us as Padilla talks about his transition from being homeless on the streets of Albuquerque, New Mexico to being the father that he is today and just helping other fathers and young men out there who are struggling with addiction. And I'd like to welcome Nathan Padilla. Okay, I wanna welcome you to the Show Up Dad podcast, podcast for trades, and I'm super stoked to have you on here. Thanks for coming today, Nathan. In today's episode, brother, I wanna just kind of kick things off by having you give listeners an overview of your story, both personally and professionally, if you don't mind. Well, thank you, David. Thanks. Uh, greatly honored that you invited me to come on your podcast and, and share with your audience. And uh, uh, hopefully I can do some justice here. Um, again, Nathan Padilla. Um, I'm down in Roswell, New Mexico, um, where the uh, outer space aliens supposedly came. Uh, and that's becoming more and more of a factor on our news, right? You hear about those, those guys. So we have, uh, we have all kinds of aliens around here. Um, and I, I, uh, where I am at today, as I tell people, uh, a little story, just in through my educational walker, I do have a variety of education that just helped me do my jobs. I have an associates in philosophies, ethics, and religion. And so helping people with moral value, standard belief systems is part of my practice. I have a, another associates in chemistry, so how things mix and match in the body. I have a bachelor's in biology pre-med, so how the human body, both male and female, works out is, is part of the work in here. A bachelor's in psychology, so the study of the mind, the good, the bad, the ugly that goes on between our ears. And uh, my master's in social work. Mm -hmm. I was first a drug and alcohol counselor and then became the, an independent clinician. I've had a practice uh, since... Uh, 2007 and then I have what I call my PhD is in crackology with a minor in insanity I'm a recovering addict myself and uh, that's sort of how I got where I'm at believe it or not in the story um, uh, I can say that you know a lot of times addiction comes from trauma uh, now, my early use of substances wasn't trauma. My parents, I give them a lot of credit. They, they had tough lives for various different reasons. And they pulled it together and said they wanted me and my sister to have a different life. And so they did. They moved across town from a lot of the other family who we visited on weekends because we loved them and were no better. They just wanted some space so that they could implement a little bit different rules. And we weren't so easily influenced by the kids and so rules like you're you're going to go to school every day and you're going to do your best and you're you know you're going to get a reward if you have an a and you might get a punishment if you get a b type of stuff so it wasn't fun but i 
greatly appreciated today. And I, I would say one of my struggles was, was always wanting to fit in. You know, I think as, as youth, we want to be part of. And, and so uh, I wanted to be part of the cool kids. And part of that journey started uh, as young as third grade. I had a, a friend who lived in a higher end um, neighborhood and, and he was quite getting into stuff quite often because he was an only child and parents always busy working, had money. And anyway, he brings to school a, a large marks a lot pin that, that he had dumped out and filled full of alcohol. And um, so there's three of us and, and, I, and Mark's a lot pins used to be, at least they used to seem very long back in the day. Maybe we were just young, but he says, come on over here. So we jumped in a big tractor tire that was on our playground and, and three of us tipped on that, that Mark's a lot pin and, and got, got a little buzz at, at, in third grade. So that was my first interaction uh, uh, running into drink like that for fun and it, and it just was fun nobody got in trouble nobody got hurt and it wasn't something that happened every day you know it was just sort of fun and then uh sixth grade um an interaction with cannabis with marijuana a friend of mine a good friend his, his mother passed away and and uh at the funeral they were passing a joint around and so just to fit into the crowd i went with it and then found a new friend you know and so by sixth grade, I was already uh, interacting with my friends and sneaking away to drink and smoke here and there. And, and, uh, but at home, there was rules and, you know, and, and life was okay. Um, my family, meanwhile, on the other side, you know, some of them by, by middle school already uh, slamming cocaine. Um, meth wasn't really a big thing back then. I'm not a young guy, I'm a little, you know, 51. So, um, they were, I was all like, no, I'm not going to do a needle, but I'll snort some. So by seventh grade, started snorting cocaine with cousins. But again, it was just a once, once in a while, not a daily deal. Fast forwarded into high school, you know, that just got to be more and more fun, but uh, still under a lot of control. And my father had gotten a new vehicle and, and, uh, and said, I get to have the old vehicle. So I said, what I heard though was I get to drive to school now and be the cool kid, and and my my you know my Hispanic mother, enmeshed mother said you ain't driving nothing yet, mm -hmm. and I threw a bit of a fit and uh, and so Dad did his job, put me in place, and he takes me to school and says we love you and and I was mad and you know I threw the tantrum like I hate you, you guys are ruining my life and never let me have any fun you know the typical stuff. Uh, and my dad handled it well and dropped us off. And we had some troubles going on uh, in the family, but nothing major, just mostly teenage stuff, mom and dad stuff, but nothing major. But my world changed that day. My dad went to work and, uh, and we found out later that he had trouble breathing and they let him come home. And my sister had just left the school a little late and missed him. But he came home, laid down, and uh, ended up having a massive heart attack and died that day. And uh, no warning to any of us. My sister's the one that found him. I get out of school, ride the bus to some friend's house, and they tell me something's wrong with your mom. She's freaking out at school. So I hurry up and get to my house, and there's just cars everywhere. And, and um I knew something was wrong because my mom's car was in the in the street, not in front of the garage like it always was. And so I run in the back 
kid, my sister comes out and says, daddy's gone. And uh, just had a big hole because we were, I was arguing with him that day and said things that I didn't mean, but I said, and now I would never get to take them back. And so from that day, life started spinning in a whole different direction. And uh, that's where, uh, not shortly after the funeral, my cousins and friends came up to me and they said, um, hey, cuz, let's, let's go over here and, and relax. We've got some new stuff. You'll like it. And I was just numbed out from the world. You know, you just bury your father. You don't, can't really remember a whole lot besides that. And, and they didn't, they didn't tell me, let's go over here and ruin your life. They presented it in a good way. They said, Hey, let's go try some new stuff. And uh, my cousin who was slamming already in seventh grade, he wanted to get off the needles. So he had uh, found out how to make crack cocaine. And uh, he goes here, try this. And, uh, I still remember I took that first hit, got the big head rush and actually threw up. I remember wiping my mouth and saying, can I have another? Wow. And instantly, uh, I know today that uh, I was addicted. You know, on that day, the, the, the drinking and the smoking pot in the past were fun. They, but this was, I got to escape my reality. And uh, then shortly after I found out it was useful to sell it and get money and, and have power over others. And so uh, at 15, um, running around with, with a whole lot of stuff uh, and a lot of confusion. And that started my world in a wrongful desire. At the same time, mad at God, mad at the world because dad was gone and the life started to change. And so all those things sort of spun me in, in a crazy direction. Um, finished high school. School was not hard. Um, went off to, to Eastern in Portales and eventually uh, still selling a lot of uh, cocaine and marijuana, getting into trouble. And uh, had already gotten to juvenile detentions in Roswell, found out my mom's. Um, what was strange, my, right, the Sunday before my father passed, he said, when I'm gone, you guys listen to your mother. I said, Okay. And uh, mom said down the road, you get yourself into trouble, you get yourself out of trouble. So I found that out when I went to juvie, yeah. uh, she left me there. <laughs> and <Buffalo>. and <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. And again, didn't like that, but, but she's, she made her point. And so uh, they went off to Portales and more trouble, problems with the police. And eventually had to come home and had a back surgery doing a little bad interactions, got a gunshot in the lower back and had to come home and, and take care of that. And uh, uh, that was the first time I said in 1989 that I was gonna stop using because I didn't wanna die on the table. And uh, I had to lay down for about two months. And uh, the first thing I did when I got out was go with the same cousins and do the wrongful things mm -hmm. and back on a mission. Um, Fell in love with a girl and then chased her to Albuquerque. Uh, so by the end of 89, I was up in Albuquerque and uh, tried to go to UNM, but UNM got in the way of my drinking and drugging. And then uh, eventually tried TBI before it was TNN and it got in the way of my fun. And so about th four times trying to go to college, I just said, okay, I don't need to. I had another job and, and drugs and alcohol were always 
intertwined in everything. There was nothing. I was in a car club called Special Dreams and built a fancy little uh, Jimmy Blazer and uh, just started running around with that in the world, doing a lot of whole lot of nonsense. But like most things, uh, eventually I became my biggest customer and, and the addiction started to go in, the, in a negative slant and uh, ruined, eventually ruined the 11-year relationship of the female I chased down there. No kids, 11 years, no children. Um, in 99, I hooked up with a girl that she just, uh, it wasn't really a Romeo and Juliet romance, it's more of a crime partner hookup. Oh, okay. And uh, we, we were good friends, you know, had each other's back, did did a few nonsense things together. And then uh, and then we just happened to hook up in a month, month and a half into that. She says she's pregnant. And we were we were homeless at the time. I'd been homeless a few different times in that time frame, uh, hustling off of down the central. There I used to live on Alvarado right off of central when I met her and um she had the same qualities as me. We were both addicted to crack cocaine, both pretty much rebelling from life. Uh, she had a couple of kids that stayed with her mom and stepfather, and I had no kids, so it just seemed convenient. Um, but we were walking by the Coronado Apartments because we didn't have a place. We just sort of gotten thrown out where we were, um, you know, couch surfing. When she said, um, I need to tell you something. I said, what's going on? And she said, uh, I'm pregnant. And all I could say was, okay, I didn't have anything else to say. But uh, what was weird about it was uh, I had a bit of peace there. Um, I didn't try to run from it. I, I don't, which d doesn't make sense to me because I wasn't hanging out for much of anything back then, you know, no responsibility, just pretty lackadaisical doing whatever made me feel good. And, and still very angry and lost at the same time. But she said, when she said that, I said, okay. And uh, didn't question, is it mine or anything else? It just seemed like, okay. And uh, now we didn't do the best of stuff because I already had some college and I knew we weren't behaving well, but we continued. Uh, I was a little worrisome, what, what would this be doing to my child? Um, but eventually, um, about a month and a half before his birth got her to a safe place where totally off of substances and, and my son was born. Um, it was a crazy birth. We thought we we're going to lose mom at the moment, but she made it through as well. And uh, I had gotten us a place. And uh, then at 28 days old, my landlord's knocking on my door and they're there to take mom away on three felony warrants. And so um, she said, I'll, I'll just, you know, we were on the second story apartment complex, bars on the windows. So it wasn't going to be an easy getaway. So she said, I'll, I'll go out the front door and, and you take care of your son. And uh, so I tried to support her. Uh, she got incarcerated. She, she wasn't released out to me. She had to go to her dad's in Santa Fe, it just didn't work. And she ended up in jail again. And eventually, she she just went off in another direction and she she didn't give me any fight for my son you know and i was really worried she did get out and 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 come and her and an old friend that we used to hustle with did come and uh get money from me once and and i told her you know that's 
I understand the game. I'm not mad at the game. It is what it is, but you're taking from your own son this time. And, uh, and so we sort of split ways on that one. And so I've raised my son since he was 28 days old. I just fully committed to it. I, I realized mom wasn't going to be around. Now, um, you know, looking back as a therapist today, I would have not, um, I would have not suggested that it, look, if I was looking at me and her, that a child would be something good to put in that equation. I'd have thought that was the last thing to do, but uh, God, God happened to know that, that uh, she would leave and I would stay apparently. And, and who knows, had she stayed, would I, I don't know, but she left and I stayed and I took being a father as a um, very, very serious job. Um, I, I noticed at that time that my life fell apart when I lost my dad and it gave me a purpose when I became a dad. Um, so I, I, I was still highly addicted at that time and kept going through the motions. It was sort of had a battle. I had my son in one arm and I had a crack pipe in the other. And I'm like, okay, I don't know which one to let go of here. And eventually God made the choice. I, I got a fourth DWI arrest. So apparently I'm a slow learner and, um, had to go do some time and, uh, and, and uh, we were, it was on Memorial Day of, uh, of 2001. Uh, we were having a barbecue and I had taken this other girl to go get some friends and it was just a mess. And, and I had to call my mom from jail like I usually did, not to ask for bond, but this time was to tell her, hey, uh, I'm in jail, but my son's at a party, you know? And uh, I'm lucky I stayed in jail because my mom probably would have killed me on that day. But uh, she had this, she has this phrase uh, that she used to tell me when I was younger. She goes, I always love you, but I don't like you most of the time. Mm -hmm. And she was not liking me that day. She goes, well, where is he at? I said, I don't know. If you go down, you know, uh, on, uh, on Rio Grande and, and, and Rio Bravo in that corner by Rio Grande High School. Luckily, my stepdad worked at, at Rio Grande High School for 25 years, so he knew the area. I said, just turn, roll the windows down, listen for music, you'll find them. And that's how they found my son. Uh, I stayed incarcerated. I had to go to do a 90 day evaluation and stuff. And I got out when the Twin Towers fell. Uh, I was getting out on the house arrest program and they started a new drug court uh, place. And I, so I had an ankle bracelet for a year, a voice coded uh, heat sensor breathalyzer unit in my home that tested me three times a day for alcohol. And then the landlord was also the PO that lived on site. And we, he drug tested us every other day. So I had uh, lost all my wiggle room. Yeah. And the only way I could get out of the, the place was to go to, go to therapy, um, go to a 12-step meeting or go to church. And I was still mad at God. So I wasn't really trying to go to church yet. And uh, so I went into 12-step meetings and sort of found a place there. And, um, and I had already danced because obviously it was my fourth DWI rest. So I had previous educations with the system with the first three and many other charges. Um, and at that point I was just tired and I had my son and I didn't want him to be walking in my footsteps. So prior to that, it didn't matter who I was around, murderers, thieves, prostitutes, obviously, whatever. Um, but, but I needed 
now I had my son and I needed to better things. And so he gave me that spark. And, and on the same hand, he didn't have a mom. She wasn't around. I didn't know where she's at. She eventually went into prison a couple of times actually and had his little brother while incarcerated. Um, so he has half brothers and sisters. I only have one. Mm -hmm. And so um, at that point, I, I, I stayed in recovery from 2001, started my journey, finished my year there and, and uh, got a job, started to become halfway human again. Um, and then uh, moved back to Roswell 2003. My mom and my sister had gravitated back to Roswell. They had followed me to Albuquerque and came back. And um, so I, I went back to Roswell uh, where I said I would never go back and, and uh, met some pretty important people, someone that really helped me with my um, spiritual walk. Um, Pastor Mark Green was doing a faith-based 12-step meeting and got, got me into that. And uh, that just really helped me untwist my mind and heal my heart from all the trauma. You know, I was about 20 years in addiction. So from fun times, making tons of money and all this other stuff till about the last five years in, in the deep dark of being homeless and hustling all damn day, you know, uh, my my habit was about an ounce of cocaine a day, so it wasn't a it wasn't a small habit to feed, and then plus hers and everything else. So uh, I don't try to give glory to all the the nonsense we did out there, but it, 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 people that know the world, there's a lot that has to happen to feed that kind of a monster inside of you, and you see all kinds of stuff, interact with all kinds of people, and. Um, so my focus was, again, to be a better dad, and, and I found out to be a better dad, because um, my mom would tell me when he was first born, if you love your son, you should just stop cocaine. And I said, Mom, I, I love my son. I buy him new Jordans. I put poison in me. And, and so we had to get this understanding. I had to get this understanding that the best thing I could give my son was not Jordans or, or stuff, but was to give him a better dad to be there for him. And so I'll tell you what, I think being a father showed me more and how to be a man than anything else, more than going to jails and walking a yard or anything else. It was about knowing that there was a job and, and you had to do it. And uh, it wasn't whether there's a female's job or a male's job, there's just a job and somebody's got to do it. So I think being a father was, uh, something that really helped me get into um, my purpose. And with that, to better me, I, I went back to school in 2003, and that's where I started the education I started out with um, in school. And uh, from 2003 to 2009, went just straight through. Uh, me and my son went back to Portales, um, just me and him, and finished out my undergrad degrees there. Um, joined a, a fraternity, um, will help start when they're Lambda Theta Phi, which is a, the first national Greek fraternity. And, and good friend Diego Espinosa, Espinosa um, was trying to get that because he transferred from UNM down. Mm -hmm. And that got me into some service work. So that's it's strange where fraternities are usually known for partying. This one was known more for service work. And so that sort of that along with my recovery, I think sort of pushed me into the wanting to help others more than just save myself and my son. 
Um, so after Vitalis, moved back to Roswell, did my master's out of the College of uh, Highlands University, had a satellite school out here and did my master's and then uh, started working in the field. Uh, worked for an agency, um, a youth agency. They, they called me on a Sunday afternoon, offered me 22 bucks an hour, and I thought it was a gift from God. I didn't even apply yeah. and uh, got the job and started helping, but they, were, they weren't so set. They didn't know what they were doing as far as addictions, and the lady was going on medical leave, so she said, can you help us with this program? I said, sure. And she had not been fully trained and I was already a licensed drug and alcohol counselor. And I said, sure, if you give us the, the green light, we'll build something. And I did. And um, two months when she returned, we went from 17 clients to 75 uh, with the full screening and assessment and treatment planning system in place. And uh, she didn't really like it. Uh, she didn't like all the work she would have to do. And she mentioned to a boss on January, I wanna say it's January 5th of 2009 that, that uh, I was uh, smoking cocaine during Thanksgiving. And I'm all, well, there's one way to prove that is do a hair test. And they didn't want a hair test. They just didn't want me there. I was the only Hispanic that had a criminal sentence, tattoos and earrings. And I was there most of the day and, and getting a bigger paycheck than them. And that's just sort of how it was. But it was in that job that I saw um, again, which I'd seen throughout life, but saw more. Um, a lot of males, a lot of young boys coming in to treatment and not everybody having a dad and having all kinds of struggles. And that just sort of made my purpose as a dad with my son even more uh, we moved back in 2000 and, and, and um, to Roswell in 2007, and um, when I would take him into school, because he got in trouble in kindergarten for just crazy stuff, and since then I, I was his uh, classroom parent because I made it a point to be an active father, and so I I go in every morning from from kindergarten to fifth grade, and. and uh, walk him into school and spend the first 30 minutes in his classroom with his room with his classmates and stuff. So I got to know them and, and who he's with. And then uh, eventually when he was in high school, I was working at his high school as well through the school-based health program. And I said, you and all your friends are gonna come back and we're gonna have a boys group. And uh, part of my thought in that was so I can continue to influence this circle of friends so they knew at least what I expected and, uh, and it worked out. Uh, another thing me and my son always did when we moved back since 2003 was every Saturday, because I was working a lot. I was, I was, my addiction was 24 seven and my recovery was a 24 seven. It was always busy. And um, then, I, so I, I lost that one job, but, but uh, my mentor told me, since you don't play well with others, why don't you start an outpatient program? And so that's what I did and uh, didn't, didn't know everything I needed to do. So I just said, okay. And he helped me out with all the policies and, and procedures. And uh, you would think the community would have been happy to get another service because there wasn't any outpatient down here in Roswell. That's why he suggested it. But uh, the good old boy system wasn't so good. Yeah. And uh, they sort of pushed back a little, who's this guy, you know, and, 
and and then they hear your record and and all this other stuff and they come up with these these uh stereotypes and things and so i had a lot of fighting back to do to, to just make the practice stand um so i was always busy but what i did as a father what i was getting to was on every saturday by one o'clock i stopped the world and uh, me and my son would go get a dinner and then go to the movies um men are not necessarily known for talking you know uh my my father uh as i mentioned i gave him credit when he was born his father threw him into an outhouse said it wasn't his son and my great grandma had to literally dig him out of the outhouse and raised him but i never saw that because my grandpa wasn't mean to us and dad always took us to his house after church on sundays hmm. so uh, it was confusing, and so I, I always wanted to be that active father. Now, my dad didn't ever throw me in the outhouse. That's good. Um, but my dad didn't just talk to us, like, how are you doing? What are your dreams? But he would teach me. He would wake me up on Saturday mornings and say, you're not going to like this, but you're going to come learn something. And he'd take me to work with him. And he was right. I didn't like waking up at 530 on Saturday, uh, but I did always learn something. More than more than I I thought because uh he, he he would take me to work and he'd say this is how you build this and this is how you fix this and that's how we communicated mm -hmm. wasn't this deep conversation about emotions but it was about teaching me skills this is how you drive this is how you shoot this is how you hunt and um and, and the funny deal is i learned more from my father today than i did when I was a young boy, it seems like, because I can remember the lessons and, and, uh, and, and that's a, a good memory I have of my father. Um, and I wanted to do that for my son. So it started off with dinner and a movie with just me and him. And then I would start bringing these friends of his at a time, <coughs> excuse me. And we would take, um, we take him and his friends to the movies and and uh, be able to talk about the movies different so what did you learn here so that was sort of the transition of learning how to talk more as a father to my son so back to starting my own business i said well We'll start with addictions because I was only a LADAC at the time. <clears throat> and so I started my, my program as an outpatient program. Then I got a contract with CYFD that wanted me to work with families. And here I start noticing again this problem of a lot of absent fathers. And uh, and uh and also finding out the value of fathers, you know, and if we look at our, our, our country as a history, you know, when we had moms and dads in the home back in the thirties, life was hard and we had all these rules. And then we had, we, we festered this rebellion, you know, around Woodstock time and women's lib and uh, drugs and all these things came into place and, and, and then we started having more and more absent fathers, of course, in, in the black communities, or, you know, slavery would separate the families. And so lots of single mom homes there. 
in Hispanic communities, drugs, alcohol, incarceration separates a lot of us. And I, and I still remember even in Albuquerque when I showed up to get assistance, because I, I never had assistance growing up. My dad and mom did well and we had pride, but I had to get out help, you know, when I was early recovery and, and had not much income. And I went in and when I mentioned that I was a single father, they looked at me funny. They said, yeah, right. And I said, no, I, I it's just me and my son and, and got it eventually. Then when I transferred my case down to Roswell, they said the same thing. They're like a single father. Like they didn't, I guess, didn't have a whole lot of men showing up trying to be a full-time dad. At least in Roswell, once I proved myself, they were very supportive, helped me with some other kinds of a programs, uh, educational assistance, and 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 that truly helped. And so then now fat back into this work with families, um, I just see that uh, there is a lot of missing dads um, in, in many ways. You know, from single mom homes to to people who know who their dad is, but dad's not involved. And either way, and then you even look at our communities, sometimes they're saying dads aren't needed in the media and the modern world. And, and um, so I've made it a point to, to really focus, even at our church with, with Pastor Mark, who helped us, I, would, I, would, I started a group for the fathers. And maybe I was just uh, underlining, I was stressed because I was the only single, truly single dad. I said, why don't you guys bring your children to the church one, one day a week? And, and we're going to have some Bible reading and we're going to have some activities. Um, and uh, I just wanted the dads to have more bonding time because I found out uh, that it was all those things together that just made me and my son um, more connected. You know, um, I'm glad to say my son's now 21. He's, uh, he's, he's, he's a big guy, you know. So I'm, I'm big little Nate and he's little big Nate. And, uh, and he's, uh, at U well, he's, he's in Roswell right now, but he's, he's in his fourth year at UNM and he's uh, a great musician, gifted musician. Mm -hmm. I, I also learned a few tricks in that, uh, one was to just be there to support my son to become who he is and not necessarily try to dictate who he needed to be. And so when he first asked to play basketball, I, I signed him up. And, and then he was standing on the court with his hands in his pocket. I said, well, this, this may not be his gift. Mm -hmm. And then eventually by fifth grade, he said, can I try uh, playing the violin? I said, well, okay, I'll get prepared for some noise. Um, but the truth is, I can't remember ever hearing noise out of my son. He's just... So he plays the, the violin, he played it in an orchestra, so classical, then he played it in the mariachi and he became the first chair violinist in both. And he even played some fiddle music on his violin. Wow. And he plays the viola, I put him in, he wanted piano, he's a gifted piano player, self-taught himself the guitar and the accordion. And so music was his deal, but he's also very smart. He, he, he went into school um, and because, as I mentioned, my father died of a massive heart attack. The, mm -hmm. the men in our family, pretty much everyone's died of a massive heart attack. So he goes, Dad, I'm going to go be a cardiologist to keep you alive. 
and that was his first uh, adventure and he started well into it and he's changed his mind now he's gone to a psychiatric nurse practitioner and now he's looking at becoming a master social worker so right now when he graduates he, he will be like dad he'll have a psychology and a biology degree and then we'll see if he's going to come and follow me into my business um, we was able to start not only an outpatient program um, but i also have a nonprofit, and we do a lot of work with uh with teenagers, we got a teen program, um, homeless teens, um, contract with DOH on a sex can wait curriculum that we, we put out once a year with kids in a group setting, um, a food bank, Roadrunner food, mobile food pantry. So, and then I joined another agency, La Familia Mental Health. And, and so I have um, the largest outpatient recovery program in Roswell, most of the biggest numbers. And then we also have a family parenting for recovery where we focus on relationships and um, try to do a lot of uh, mentoring. You know, we got, I'm uh, uh, doing some juvenile probation groups and trying to do um, separating them into gender specific. So I, I'm wanting to, to, to create time for the males and their fathers to come in at least once a month as a, as a, in a sense of family session to try to promote those connections, you know? Um, so, uh, as I can say, my life fell apart uh, when I lost my dad and, and then gave me purpose when I became a father. And, um, that's just sort of what I, I keep doing is trying to be his dad. And, uh, set a high bar so if he's going to follow me he's got some work to do yeah, and um exactly I and think he does it i think it's interesting nathan that just listening to your story and the transition from you losing your dad at an early age you becoming a father and just that whole coming around circle that you have to go through where your influence right is now being a catapult for your son to where he even wants to be like you. That's how important our influence as a father is. I mean, he went from wanting to be a cardiologist, right, to save his life, to now doing exactly what his father is doing. That's how much influence we have as fathers. Can you uh, can you expand a little bit more about that? And what you do? Sure. I um. You know, as I said, my dad was was an idol to me, um, even though we, I wasn't getting along with him that day. And I said, I hate you. I, it was more of I, I wasn't getting my way. So I was mad. I did idolize my dad. He was a superhero in my eyes because he just he was just solid. He was there. He was strong. He was a provider. And um, when I lost that, it was just a mess. And my mom's a strong woman. She, she was probably tougher than dad in her own ways. But um, what I realized is women can teach boys how to become a good person, but they don't have the same ability to teach a boy how to become a man. And, and, and it's a little different. Women, you know, through pregnancy and childbirth, they get outside of themselves and, and, and probably have a closer connection to an attachment to children. And dad, sometimes we don't even believe we're, we're dad till we're holding the child. And, and a lot of them, get confused and they don't know what to do. I know I, I work with the grads program out of the high school with teen parents. And every time I have a, a young father, especially if he has a little girl, 
I will ask him this one question. I will say, will you be okay if your daughter dates a boy like you when she grows up? And they've all said no. And I said, well, then you better change starting now because you are the model to your daughter of how a man is going to behave. And so I've just been watching these things, you know, for boys, if they're raised in a single home, and again, I'm not, I'm not bashing women at all because I really appreciate it. I see some really strong women that just go through the ringer, but because they're more nurturing, they tend to baby their boys and they don't grow up and they still throw tantrums as men. And uh, so dads are needed there to sort of have that logic driven focus of, Hey, you, you got to get up. You got to, you got to put in the work and, and, and really show them how to go. And if you look throughout history, for men, for boys to become men, there's always this like rite of passage, you know, and, and it's not an easy one. You know, if you looked at the movie 300, you know, how they had to live in the, in the wilderness for three days and fight a wolf and, and you know, Native American, you go on a, on a spirit journey and, and, you know, Africa, they're just crazy stories of what, boys have to do to become a man and uh there's usually not women involved in there because they're too nurturing so yeah. i think men are just needed to to show them how you step up and and i think as men we we got to be able to talk more um and and put in and now with daughters fathers are man just important as as i teach from three to five, dads give daughters the security to go out and explore and know they, they have someone behind them to give them strength. But in the teenage years and when they're little, dads can wrestle and tickle them. But when we get to the teenage years and they start to develop, then dads are like, oh, my God, I don't know what to do. And because they're teenagers and girls, they tend to start going this way. And dads that don't know how to communicate are going this way. And that is another problem of absent fathers, even in when they're in the home. Yeah. I had a young lady who was 15. She had worked uh, with her dad for two years. Dad and mom were still together, yet she hadn't spoke to him in, in two years also. And I'm like, how does that happen? You know, yeah. but they just kept just, they never communicated. But I, I tell like back to um, the daughters, I tell the, the men, you know, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, when it comes to the love, attention, and affection, they need a healthy man to show how he does that appropriately to mom, again, as that model of what she's going to see as normal. Mm -hmm. And and if he's doing it, if, he, if he's saying, you're beautiful, we love you, then she's not so vulnerable to Julio over here on the other side of the fence is just spitting game over the wall says the same words but different meaning yeah and and so uh i see girls coming from what looks like a decent home mom and dad there they've got money they've got jobs and and all of a sudden she's dating this crazy mess you know and so we need strong fathers just to, to show um the girls how that they should be treated with respect and to um you know, not give them all they want right away, you know, and so dads are important in both boys and girls uh, in all cultures. Um, so I, I really am a fan of that one uh, of dads showing up. Absolutely. 
No, I, I agree with you 100%. I think it's uh, interesting that you talked about how they're from ages three to five, right? You know, you can wrestle with your daughters and stuff like that. That's kind of the position I'm at now. I have a daughter who's 14 years old. You know, for the beginning stages of her life, I was on the road. I, I built power line. I'm a tradesman. I'm a, I'm a journeyman lineman. Okay. So all over the place when she was really young. So it was just mom and my wife. Or, or my wife and uh, my daughter and they're at the home I would leave them here and uh, I would take off you know so the beginning eight stages of my daughter's early life were consistently with my wife so now that she's 14 years old and I've been home now for two years I've been fortunate enough to be home I uh see that I'm having to regain her heart because I didn't have that influence. You know, I, I like what you talked about influence. Okay. And in order to have influence, you have to make that time because time is influence. You know, I think John Maxwell talks about that. Okay. And that's also a level of leadership. And we see that with you, you know, just going through the process of, of what you're doing and then your son seeing that level of influence and then you being able to, to help him with his career, him, him seeing you and seeing that he wants to do something like his dad. And it goes both ways as well for our daughters. Um, one of the things that I struggled with as a father was uh, I like to drink and I have this vision. I like it, okay? I would drink, get rid of my problems, right? And when I would quit drinking, I would start chewing tobacco, circle, and that was my pattern. And it wasn't until my wife brought that to my attention that I saw that that's how I would deal with things. It was a pattern. Um, I remember coming home one day and I was working out in Texas. I came home, I had down to six pack of Shiner Bar. And I came in through the back of my property. And what I was doing is I was trying to sneak in the house to open up a beer because my wife had a six pack of beer waiting for me at the house. And I didn't want her to smell that I was taking shots and miniatures and drinking Shiner. So I snuck in the back door and, and I got a beer and I started drinking it before I even said hi to her, before I even said hi to my father. So one day I'm out barbecuing, and, you know, we have 15 acres behind my house of Falcon. And uh, I would be sneaking miniatures and throwing them over the fence. And the neighbor who was uh, irrigating that year came up and he had a five gallon bucket filled with Maker's Mark miniatures. And my wife knows that's what I like to drink. So he brought it up to our, our the fence line. He's like, are these yours? And I looked at my wife and she gave me that look, like shook her head and she went inside. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll take those. I'm sorry about that, bro. I didn't know anybody had that property. You know? So I came inside and she tells me, she gave me that, that talk, okay? She's like, look, I don't want to be a nagging wife. I don't want to tell you what to do because it doesn't work. So, but are you going to be okay with your daughter smelling and getting accustomed to that smell that's on you? Are you going to be okay if she marries a man that smells like that? And I tell you what, man, I tried everything from, from you know, just reasoning and saying, Jesus turned water into wine. And, you know what I mean? I was a Christian then, you know, and, uh, I would try to make up all these excuses. God says that it's not bad to drink, just don't be a drunk. 
But when she told me that, and she spoke that into my life, and, and just bringing that to recognition in my head, I don't know if it was uh, what Dr. Carolyn Leaf talks about, how your brain, once it has a level of awareness, it starts trying to fix that problem. I think that's what happened for me because that right there and then stopped me from drinking. And I haven't drank in over 12 years. And it took my wife bringing that level of cognizance to me to where I was aware of the problem I was creating in my life. You know, uh, can you touch base a little bit about that and how that works or what you've seen? Well, we, we talk about a, a timeline, um, especially in, in my family parenting that for the first five years, parents have 98% of the influence in the child's life, yet we have 0% control. Mm -hmm. And so uh, potty training should teach us that one, you know. Um, at age six, children are the most influential that they usually are, uh, independent as they, they will be because they want to go to school, but they still want to come home so nobody has more influence. But from seven to 30, peers are far more stimulating than parents. Mm -hmm. And and so sometimes parents will, their kids want to go hang out with their friends all the time. And they say, what are they more valuable than us? And it, it's not that they're more valuable. They're just more exciting because they've been staring at us for so long. Mm -hmm. and, and so if you can remember those numbers that all we do is influence them. We don't control them. Uh, through, through them growing up, and, and this is uh, stuff from Bruce Perry, Dr. Bruce Perry um, does a lot of good work with trauma. Um, he, one, of his, one of my favorite books is, of his is uh, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, and he, he talks about his case studies and how he met them, what happened to them, what's going on in the brain, and, um, and, and then how he helped them, but he talks about brain development. And if you, if you, you learn the brain, you know, the first part that starts is the spinal cord and from, from conception until one year, all its primary is, is loading in sensation, primary sensory. Mm -hmm. And so how mom's life is, um, she's the environment for our child. Um, if she's loved and cared for in a good relationship and, and eats well, you know, then it's a nice warm environment and our child may be calm. But if mom is a mess, has mental health, my son's mom, you know, he's literally a crack baby by, by standards and, and they, they're wired that way, um, then you got to understand that and how to influence that. Um, the next mode is fight, flight, or freeze and secondary processing. So first they feel if they don't feel safe, they're gonna react. Uh, so fighting can be verbally or physically. Flighting can be physically leaving or, or running into behaviors like drugs, relationships, gambling. And then freezing is depression, isolation. And up to this point, children are just natural believers. They're just absorbing stuff. They're not learning whether it's right or wrong. They're just pulling it in because that next stage, the limbic stage where it says memory and we confuse our kids because when we're little, we, we tell them about Santa Claus. You know, we tell them the story of this nice man that leaves you presents. But then when we're too lazy to chase him down the hall, we introduce the boogeyman or the kukui, you know, so we install fear at the same time. But the more, more screwed up part is Santa Claus isn't real and the boogeyman is. 
you know, and sometimes we may be the boogeyman at times, you know, and so um, kids will just learn these things. And then when, when they're in the puberty stage, they're just plugging things in from their memory to see if we are going to accept it. And, and so we got to realize the things they're plugging in are the things that we did. Mm-hmm. So, so in, in parenting, I have a few rules in my parenting class. The very first rule is it is not a jo- uh, the parent's job to make their child happy because happiness is an internal deal, you know, that I can be content with what I have right now and be okay. That doesn't mean I don't want more, but I don't need it to be okay right now. Mm-hmm. But it is the parent's job to create the environment to experience happiness in. Yeah. And that's where our involvement is, right? Mm-hmm. Rule number two is if, if a child does something wrong, your first question should be, did they learn that from me? Because they probably did because you're 98% of the influence. Uh, and if they did, then you correct yourself and you can lead them down that path. Mm-hmm. And then the third is a child will only do what you allow them to do more than once. So that's why you need to nip it in the bud when they do something that isn't good or healthy. And when it's a safety deal, we tend to, right? If they're running towards the socket with a fork, you you don't play games with that, but then they do other things and and we just blow it off. You know, they cuss and we laugh at it or something. Mm-hmm. And, and so we, and we're, they're always watching us again, mm-hmm. like your wife told you, and I tell the teenage boys, everything we do is getting absorbed in and they're going to determine, I'm going to try this at some state. So we're influencing those things. Um, what I've also learned from Dr. Leaf and, and her daughter last year on a panel, they were talking and uh, Dominique said one time, she goes, mom, and it was just about parenting. And Dominique told her mom, mom, you're, you're probably one of the smartest people that I've ever, ever will know with all your, you know, four PhDs and stuff. But sometimes I didn't want your knowledge and wisdom. I just wanted you to listen to me. Wow. And, and I brought that home and, and I started realizing as parents, we're good talkers. Mm-hmm. Stop this, do that, go to bed, leave them alone, get off your phone right? So parents, children actually learn about parents because remember first they can't talk at all. So they just hear us. So, and and now we can give them some, some confusing messages because we can come home and slam the door and have a funny face and sit down and they ask you, well, what's wrong? Are you mad? And we said, no, I'm not mad. You know, so we lie in our words, but our tone and our body language is giving them another signal. So Sometimes we got to watch that. We got to make sure that we are passing on a clear message, you know, in our communications. Um, But then the listening part, you know, uh, learning how to really just listen. Um, And and I tell my parents and and my couples uh, therapy, I'll tell them, um, you need to remember your role when you're a parent that, again, it's not your job to make them happy, but so many people will do things out of their own emotions. So say the kid does something wrong and you have to punish them, mm-hmm. but you feel bad because they're upset. And so parents will then give in. Mm-hmm. And I tell parents, well, when you give in, you're actually being very selfish because you're focused on how you feel rather than what's best for the child to learn. You know, had, had a mom coming in here and 
kid is just acting like a monster to her. She behaved in my office because I have rules when they come in. I tell them, here's rules. We, you know, you might get a snack here or here's some stuff we may play with, but there's rules. We're here for a, a job. And um, they listened well. Well, this mom was pulling her hair out saying, what did I do so wrong? And I said, well, it's not that you did anything wrong. You just did a lot of things you thought were good. And they've totaled up to that old saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And so, uh, and so just having that structure, yeah. um, you, you talking about your daughter had me remember a, a story. And one thing I'll tell my fathers is uh, one, invest in post-it notes, yeah. um, right? I love you, you're beautiful. And you stick it right in the middle of her mirror because you know a teenage girl is going to look in the mirror. Oh, yeah. She's going to see it. She's going to at first. She's going to. It's going to bug. It's going to bug her, and she's going to laugh. And, and but I heard this one story, and it was a man who had a, a daughter, and it was her senior year, and he realized, I'm about to lose her to college, and I don't even know her that well. And all and for one semester, and it was the last semester, January through May, he made a promise with her. He goes, we need to really get to know each other. And uh, he said, we're going to go to breakfast every Saturday, just me and you. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, breakfast is something we normally do. So it wasn't something odd, you know. So the first time they went out to, you know, IHOP and stuff. And it was a little awkward because they'd never gone just by themselves. And, and they had a couple of rules, no phones and stuff. And it's just going to be me and you. Yeah. And, and then by the second, third one, it's just some more small talk. And eventually it became a highlight of their week that it was just her and dad going to lunch. And then when she went off to college, she still would video chat with him on Saturday mornings. And they just really grew a really good relationship off of something very simple, just putting time and learning to listen, you know? So back to us telling kids all the time, they tend to know how we think. And, and what I tell parents is a lot of times we got to get ourselves out of the way. So when my son has done stuff, especially stuff that really gets me mad, you know, because he's not doing what I want him to do. Um, I get myself out of the way. And unless it's a safety issue, I don't have to talk to him right away about it, you know? And, and if I'm still mad and I, and I have this, um, and, and one thing I did learn from Dr. Leaf's conference this year, Dr. Henry Cloud was talking about uh, boundaries yeah. And, and, and that the emotion of frustration is a needed emotion for learning. Mm -hmm. Because when we're frustrated, it's because we're plugging in from our memory something that should work, but it's not working. Yeah. So the frustration is going to make us try something else. Yeah. And, and then you, you, you pair that up with anger, the secondary emotion that is usually because what I want isn't working but it, it, anger causes change. Most people don't change their life till they're angry enough about it. Mm -hmm. And so then you use that energy to make the positive change rather than a negative change because anger can go either way by then. And, and just uh, to push that, that change through. Um, and so, um, you know, with, with our kids, we just gotta learn and I teach again out of that Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And, and I'll give an example. Once um, my, my son's senior year, um, he uh, had a car. I had given him a car and he had a few rules for his graduation, get a newer car. 
And uh, he had this girlfriend that lived in Farmington. We met her, fam her family in Albuquerque one time. We were up there for uh, solo and ensemble. And um, we met him and then uh, he had been in some trouble for staying out late. Not he, My son's never done nothing majorly big, but uh, he's all dad can I go spend the night at my friends? We're going to go to the, the, the breast cancer walk and, and we have a, a late walk. And then we just want to go and have a bonfire. And, and I didn't let him stay too many nights when he was little. And I was feeling, like I said, a little bad. And I said, okay, go ahead, son, but be home early because there's stuff to do. All right, dad. Well, my son takes off to Farmington. I get a call on a Friday uh, and I notice that the caller ID says Farmington and it's the girlfriend's dad. And he says, hello, I said, hello. He goes, um, he goes I, I, I just finished talking to my daughter and she said that, that little Nathan was on his way up here to visit her. And, uh, and we thought, well, fine, you know, are they gonna stay the night? And, and, and the daughter said, no, he said he has to be home by 7.30 in the morning. And he goes, so I just didn't think that sounded right. So I was calling you. I said, well, I really appreciate your, your calling me, sir. I, apparently I need to go real quick. And so I hung up and uh, I called my son. He answers just, you know, brightful. Hey, dad, what are you doing? And I, all I told, because I had a client in my office at the same time too. I'm all, turn your car around. He goes, dad, I said, turn your car around. He was in Klein's Corners. Oh, wow. And I said, get home. And dad, I said, get home. And I hung up and he's texting me, dad, I love you, all this. And I'm all, uh-huh, love you too, get home. <laughs> but I, and I was so mad, but then, then I had like another seven hours because I worked from nine to seven every day straight through with clients. And in the back of the head, I'm, I'm, I am got him tied to a post and I'm beating him down, you know, because like, what are you doing, kid? But all day I'm, I'm having to tell people about, you know, be understanding and all this other stuff. So about time I get off work, uh, I was tired of beating them in my head, you know. Yeah. And, but I did tell myself, what do I need to do? Because my job as a parent is to teach them how to grow up and be a successful adult not how to stay a dependent child, how to live without me, you know? And so we sat down and, and, and had a discussion about what was wrong and, and why that wasn't okay, what he, what he was wanting to do. But at the same time, letting him know that I understood, I've done plenty of stupid over girls growing up, you know? Yeah. So, so he, he knows my mess cause he lived with it and some of it. And he's, he's, He's always been in the rooms of recovery. Recovery, um, you know, one of the twelve-step mantras would be, "You're only as sick as your secrets." And so I'm pretty open about stuff. And um, so we just sat and talked. And and again, what I'm getting, trying to get at is, I had to get myself out of the equation. Get my how dare him? You know, this is risky. But then to to try to really listen to what was he trying to do mm -hmm. with this, and then. To guide him and we came up with okay here's your consequences you know you're going to lose your phone for a week but we're going to call your girlfriend or family and first thank them for calling me because who knows what could have happened and and let them know that uh that we're not mad at them but you're not going to have your phone for a while 
you know, instead of just taking the phone impulsively and angrily and cutting them off. And, and I didn't want to, and so we've just learned how to use that system that, that uh, if, if I'm so angry that I'm going to have to yell, I better take a walk first because then I'm not going to communicate what I really need to do, which is to be his dad and guide him how to be a successful adult in that. And so it gets hard sometimes, definitely. And, and then again, with partners being the man, being the leader, um, again, not looking for the, for the Mrs. Right, but being the Mr. Right in the relationship. Mm -hmm. What do I need to do to be that Mr. Right for her right now? Uh, which again is hard, you know, when, 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 when your feelings are hurt or whatever. And um, just to realize that feelings are going to come and go. Mm -hmm. And so uh, another thing Dr. Leaf said last time was the process is think, feel, choose. And if people feel first, it sends you in a whole nother direction. Mm -hmm. You know, if you feel first, then all you're thinking is about how to fix that feeling rather than thinking about the goal and the outcome, which then will produce an, a different type of feeling. Yeah. And so, you know, influencing our kids um, and, and one is, is correcting ourselves, getting ourselves out of the way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I stopped smoking in 2009 as well when I had a, a, an EKG testing and they said I already had scar tissue from heart attacks and it was like, cocaine addiction I remember two overdoses but I also remember that's what happened to my father and I stopped smoking cigarettes that day and already stopped drugs and everything just cold turkey said okay I, I can't leave my son uh, the way I was left and I know my dad didn't do it on purpose but they said the primary reason for his heart attack was nicotine yeah and uh, and then my son he used to cry like you're gonna die don't smoke you know so I stopped um, my son started smoking not too long ago and I'm all hey 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 <laughs> what's going on here you used to cry when I did I stopped because my dad died I said so come on you're, you're messing up the role here yeah. so I, I've put the pressure on him and he's he's pulled back I almost got him completely back off of it but uh I said no he's not smoking cigarettes he's doing the vape I said no here's the education on that you just need to stop and so I almost got him there um but but my change again is is a powerful weapon um and uh, you know that was something I mentioned on Dr. Lee's video and and she liked it when I said, uh, when I dig up my past and my learning, my stumbling stones and learning times, uh, they, they become a weapon in my hand. But if somebody digs them up, then it becomes a weapon against me. And so I, I just try to keep all the weapons away and safe nowadays and, and, and face things. And uh, like I said, uh, learn how to stop first so that we're not yelling at people, you know, our kids and stuff. And my son has gotten very appreciative at times. Like we have some good friends and we go visit them and, and how some people talk to their kids and he goes, dad, I really appreciate. I never saw any of that, you know? Now he's a little entitled at times and that, that gets my nerves, but you know, um, but he's not, not a bad kid. And I think when it comes to time, when, when the time comes, he's going to step up into it, you know? Absolutely. It's cool that you're already starting to see that in your life. Root of that, right? 
-hmm. you planting that seed that level of not only did you say something, something as a father, you know, you showed him do what I do, not what I or do what I say, not what I do. You actually live. I think that's so important when we tend to do that as fathers. I know I'm guilty of it myself. We send a mixed message that will leave them confused. You know what I mean? When you're telling them you love them, but then you're yelling at them and you're Marsley we're sending them a mixed message. Now we're raising children that are confused, who in their 20s and 30s are seeking help when they should be raising their own children. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I think that's amazing the way you said that. I mean, just one of the points that you talked about is stepping back and stepping out. I see that now with my daughter. I have to do that because you're right, you know. One minute I'm on the phone, you know, uh, doing my podcast or, or doing meetings or whatever. I'm, I'm extremely busy, but then I'm turning around and telling her, "Hey, get off your phone." And she's looking at me with this bewildered look, like, "Dad, you're on your phone." Yeah, you know, and it's sending a mixed message. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm so glad you touched on that, um, Nathan. I know our time's gone pretty long here. I'm so thankful for you to be on here, brother. And I, I definitely want to bring you on here again. I, I, I want to do more work with you, brother. I think what you're doing is excellent. And God's really blessing the fruit that you're you're producing with this. Um, how can people get a hold of you, brother? And it'll be in the notes too, but if you just say to our audience right now. Okay. Uh, sure. Uh, and David, I'm, I, I look forward to, to doing more podcasts with you. We go to Albuquerque frequently, maybe meeting up and even doing some talks with you and maybe come down and talk with some of our people as well. Um, so very easily, um, uh, my phone number, uh, 575-840-1075 is my work cell. I don't mind putting it out because uh, I've had mom's call me saying, I found your card in my son's bedroom or, you know, or I'm sure it's written on the bathroom wall and it's, it, at least it won't say for a good time. It says, if you need help, call Nathan, right? So that, there's my number. Um, I work at La Familia Mental Health in Roswell, New Mexico. Um, there's a few laws down here. There's a La Familia Medical and a, and a, and a La um La Casa and all these, but it's La Familia Mental Health uh, is where we're at. And then my nonprofit is Embrace Inc. I'm not on social media a lot. I just see a lot of stuff there. I have a, a, a Facebook page, but that's because my my Unity Center, the youth program, to, to be the administrator of that, I have to have one. Mm-hmm. Um, but the best way I would just say is, is call me again on my phone number or even send me an email nathan m padilla at gmail.com and uh i will respond and uh i i i um i'm i'm also the president of the uh new mexico addictions education network um and we're a group of professionals around the state that we we help train substance abuse uh providers and we do other talks and so i have some colleagues in Albuquerque, Silver City, and we put a conference on every year. We're actually the second uh, longest going uh, conference in the country that will need to be beaten by Harvard. We, we just finished our 20, 53rd this, this year. So um, 
so we talk on addictions. We again, one of my passions is just life with with being a father, um, and uh, it's it's a job. It's an honorable job, and I just wish more would step up to it. And uh, and and we try to just help them find a new way, so it doesn't have to be such a trouble. We see people just frustrated. You know, it's hard. And I said, no, how you're going about it is hard. It doesn't have to be a hardship. It should be a joy and it should be a pleasure and an honor. You're going to have some bumpy moments. I don't want to, my, my life is not perfect at all, but we, we stand together. I've been from being the homeless lost guy, God's blessed me to where now I get to not only help my mom and her husband, I help my sister and I help. And, and so I, and I find that is a responsibility of a good man as well to help the people around him. So uh, David, I, I love to uh, interact some more. And if we didn't get over anything uh, question wise, we can pick it up the next time. But uh, I'm greatly honored that you uh, reached out to me. Absolutely, brother. And one, one last thing for our listeners, Nathan. What is something that you're still working on that, that kind of you struggle with? How are you? What are the steps you're doing to overcome that? Okay. So I, I realized I was really broken. Actually, somebody told me that, you know, when I was early recovery, she said, uh, how good of a gift would you be if you offered yourself to a partner? And uh, so I've put a lot of work into working in myself, uh, cleaning out the closets. And um, so I, I, I figured out I'm a hard worker and I've built a few good businesses and um and, and I guess the hardest thing for me still is just uh, making sure that I have that balance for everybody. Like I said, I usually start stop the world for my son on Saturdays. But uh, um, I think my substituting of addiction became workaholic. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I don't want to be that case, as you mentioned, um, you're saving everybody else, but you're not saving your family. So that's something I've been working on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I just, I'm, I got a strict structure for me. So I can't, I can't say I have, I'm a happy man. Most of the time we're working on, on a, on a relationship and I've, I've made it difficult in the first place to make sure it's going to work. Um, but my first focus is still my immediate family, my son, my mom, my sister, and, um, and to keep that balance, you know, I think is for me, I've, I've, I, I can't, I'm never going to be cured of my addiction, but I, I put so much stuff between me and it that, that uh, I, I don't struggle with the cravings or the desires. I see the problems every day in my office. Uh, and I've learned that I cannot own the successes or failures of my clients. I can just give them all that I have when they're in front of me. And so just trying to be that good father, that good listener. It's something I still work on to listen. Um, and for the most part, like I said, I, I, I feel really blessed. A lot of times I, I wake up thinking I'm dreaming that it's, it's really good. And so I'll, uh, when I teach, I do talk about how we, we have our struggles as a family. They're just not fights anymore. They're just about, hey, son, you need to get a job. You know, you're, you're 21. Dad's not going to support you forever, you know. Um, and, 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 you know, uh, but I, I, like I said, I'm blessed because my family's gotten closer and uh, we just have normal teenage challenges. And, and like I said, my son's not on drugs. He's not 
in trouble. He's a straight A student. Um, so just just uh, trying to keep my head humble and focused and, and balanced, keeping that balance, you know, to stay healthy and, and not get too carried away with trying to save the world or, or whatever. So, yeah, and that, that's awesome that you recognize that a lot of fathers don't even know where to, to be. It's about that awareness, seeing that about yourself, that you have an addictive personality. So one of the addictions could possibly turn into work becoming a workaholic. So you have this level of awareness now where you can start doing time blocking and managing your time. You know, that's one of the things that I do as a, a father engagement uh, uh, coach. You know, I, I try to help fathers to see the patterns that they're taking so they can have a cascading effect, you know what I mean? A, a positive pattern, you know I mean? whether it be working out, what happens when you work out? You tend to start having all these different patterns that start to come out from that, you know, eating right, uh, you know, uh, getting better sleep, you know, uh, just different cascading effects that happen. And that could go for negative and for positive. So that's one of the things we, I, 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 my uh, clients is being a coach, you know, being aware, you know, writing them down. If you don't have a vision, you know what I mean? You're not going to see The Bible talks about, uh, how my people suffer for lack of knowledge. It also talks about having a vision and write it down. So we practice, you know, at the father engagement coaching that I do, writing these vision boards, writing down your negatives, your positives, like you're talking about. And I think that's that's really helped a lot of people. I'm, I'm glad to see that you implement something like that in your life as well. And you're seeing the fruit of it, brother. You are. I mean. From where you were to where you are today is a complete transition to where the fruit that you're bearing is starting to pay off in your son. And that's such an amazing, I mean, that's such an amazing testimony because that talks to our fathers out there that, hey, no matter where you are, don't give up, you know, engage with your child, make that conscious decision to be the father that's going to be there. And then these are the steps and this is the fruit that you're going to have in your life. So I think that's important. That's the message that we're here speaking about on the Show Up Dad podcast. Life isn't hard, and or life is hard, I mean. And I, I like what you said, actually. I'm going to quote you. You said, life is already hard. Treat me pretty hard. You know, I, I heard you say that on Dr. Carolyn Lee's too. And I, I thought that was amazing because it's true. Life has the tendency of kicking our butt, man, if you let it. So, you know, work smarter, not harder, my father always taught me. So, I thank you, brother, for being on here, and uh, you're a blessing, bro, and uh, I know our audience is going to really enjoy this message that you brought. Well, and then with, like, modern technology today, this doesn't make it hard. Uh, um, one last, uh, I will say, I guess fatherhood is something. I went to Europe two years ago. Um, I just came up with this trip, and I went to Kiev, Ukraine, and, and met some friends up there, but I traveled all by myself. But even when I was there, I, I somehow between this thing happened, this thing happened, I got interviewed um, on, on a TV station about uh, a successful single father. And it's strange everywhere I go to me, the father part comes first and, and then the success. And, uh, and I'm also glad to say uh, my mom's saying she's, she's adjusted it a bit because she still loves me, but she likes me most of the time because she, she doesn't have to tell me what to do anymore. I'm already doing it. 
And I think if we just listen to our elders and, uh, and we spend time now to share that as they tell kids and parents, family rules aren't about being mean and sucking the fun out of them. A parent should be able to communicate the value of that rule to the child. And through that, they create that relationship. And eventually the child will follow the rule, not because of the consequence, but because of the value of the relationship. Mm-hmm. And uh, so just continuing to work to, to not get our heads in the clouds, but to stay focused on on uh, on ourselves. And, and, and when you said, I, I know one thing, uh, God, when I got that Ford DWI, he said, you're not going through the purpose I need you, I created you for. So he separated me from the world to make me different. And then at some point he's, he re-entered me into the world to make a difference. And, um, and that first had to start at home. And then he's blessed me to carry that into our community. And, uh, but I still, I can't forget the home and that's where to me the balance is, so. Amen, brother. Well, thank you for being a part of this show, man, and thank you for making this podcast what it is. I think, brother. Well, thank you for having it. This is definitely, I, I can see that this will be something very needed in our communities, just so men can understand. So I'm going to take the pressure off, take the, the, the game away, mm-hmm. uh, and just show up and be a dad. You don't have to have all the questions, but you just got to have the heart to find the answers with your kids. I love that. You got to have that heart, bro. Thank you, Nathan, and have a blessed day, brother. You too. Thank you very much.